In case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out, and it's actually a New York Times and also Sunday Times bestseller. So if you've ordered a copy, thank you so much. If you've read the book already, I'd love it if you could leave a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked out the book, you might like to consider checking it out. In this bonus episode of Deep Dive, let's listen to an excerpt from chapter two of the audiobook of Feel Good Productivity. This chapter is all about finding actionable ways to feel more empowered at work. And in this little snippet, we'll discover how to find more freedom at work, even when you're not your own boss. Starting in the early 1970s, the psychologist Edward Deasy became intrigued by a simple question. What motivates people to do hard things? This was a theme that had fascinated him since the very beginning of his career. Just one year after completing his PhD at Carnegie Mellon University in 1970, he published an influential paper in which he asked people to solve a puzzle called the Soma Cube, a little like a Rubik's Cube. He found that those who were offered a financial reward for solving the puzzle were, weirdly, less likely to enjoy the task and were more likely to give up solving the puzzle after the reward was removed, compared to those who weren't offered any money at all. The material reward seemed to make people less engaged with the task, not more. This led DC to conclude that the offer of a material reward can, peculiarly, decrease motivation. When, in 1977, DC met another young psychologist, Richard Ryan, the pair embarked on a professional relationship that would transform how the world thinks about motivation. Over the next 20 years, Ryan and DC developed a completely new way to think about why we do hard things. Their contribution culminated in 1981 with their statement of self-determination theory. Until that point, most scientists had thought that motivation was mainly driven by incentives like rewards and punishments, but DC and Ryan showed otherwise. They encouraged readers to see motivation falling on a spectrum, with extrinsic at one end and intrinsic at the other. Intrinsic motivation comes from the inside, driven by self-fulfillment, curiosity, and a genuine desire to learn. Extrinsic motivation comes from the outside, driven by pay rises, material rewards, and social approval. But these forms of motivation were not equal. According to self-determination theory, intrinsic motivation is substantially more powerful than extrinsic motivation. Lasting motivation comes from within. But that wasn't where DC and Ryan's theory ended because they also showed that intrinsic motivation is something that can be built up. As early as the 1980s, they were demonstrating that intrinsic motivation can be enhanced by a handful of forces, chief among them our sense of autonomy. In layperson's terms, that's a sense of ownership, and it's our final contributor to the sense of power that energizes us and our work. DC and Ryan argued that when people feel they have power over their own actions, they're much more likely to be intrinsically motivated to engage in them. That's why the Soma Cube experiment found that monetary rewards reduce people's motivation. They don't feel like they fully own the task, but that they're undertaking it for some external reward. Their sense of control declines, and so does their sense of motivation. This rings true in our own lives. Our need for control is why we hate being micromanaged by our bosses and our parents. Our need for control is why we love to decorate our bedrooms when we're kids, or design our homes as adults. And when our control over our lives is taken away, if we end up in prison or shackled to a job we don't enjoy, it can have disastrous consequences for our physical and mental health. The trouble is that taking control isn't always straightforward. Sure, some of us have jobs in which we have plenty of ownership over our day-to-day -day lives. Successful entrepreneurs have autonomy over the direction of their businesses. Digital nomads are free to trot around the globe, working from any cafe they come across. Others don't and can't. 
A hotel receptionist has to stand at the desk to greet and welcome guests. He can't just choose to work from home. A junior doctor on the hospital ward has to see all the patients on the list. She can't just decide to ignore patients who are rude to her. But what makes the concept of ownership so powerful is that you can integrate it into almost any situation. All too often, when we find ourselves in a situation we don't like, we start feeling fatalistic. I don't like where I live, but it's not in my power to move. I don't like where this relationship is going, but it's not in my power to alter it. I find this work boring, but it's not in my power to change it. Sometimes we're right. There is nothing we can do. But often, we have more agency than we realize, if not over the whole situation, then over parts of it. We have control even when we don't know it. Experiment number five, own the process. My favorite example of humans' remarkable ability to take ownership of bad situations comes from Filet of Fish 1066. In June 2016, the gentleman behind the Reddit account, Filet of Fish 1066, made headlines for getting fired. He'd been working as a software developer at his company for six years, where his work mostly involved testing software in the quality assurance department. It was deeply boring. All he did was run the same old tests on the same old software, following the same old scripts every time. So Filiofish 1066 came up with a plan. Without alerting his boss, he spent the first eight months of his employment programming software to automate his job. From then on, the custom programs he'd written worked on autopilot, running the quality assurance tests perfectly. His boss never checked on him because everything was going well. As he wrote in a post on Reddit after being fired, From around six years ago up until now, I have done nothing at work. I am not joking. For 40 hours each week, I go to work, play League of Legends in my office, browse Reddit, and do whatever I feel like. In the past six years, I have maybe done 50 hours of real work, so basically nothing, and nobody really cared. Unfortunately for Filiofish 1066, over half a decade into his ingenious plan, someone at IT figured out what was going on and reported it to his boss. He was sacked for having the audacity to automate his own job. I'm not suggesting that Filiofish 1066 was someone with an impeccable career strategy, nor that he was a paragon of virtue. But I do suspect that Filiofish 1066's actions hint at the first way we can build our sense of ownership, even in situations in which we have little independence. When we can't take ownership of the situation, we can still take ownership of the process. Filiofish 1066 had realized that he might not have ownership over what he did, as he had to do what his boss said, but he chose to take ownership over how he did it. There were plenty of things he didn't have any influence over, the software he was testing, the priorities of his manager, the amount of work he was given. But there were plenty of tasks that were entirely in his hands. How he got through that to-do list, how he managed his time, how he made use of the tools that he was given. That was how he realized that his job could be automated and came to spend eight months building the systems and processes to do just that. There's a lesson here for us all. There's almost always a way for us to own the process of a task, even when the outcome has been determined by someone else. If you work in customer service, you may not have control over the company's policies, but you can take ownership of how you interact with customers. You can make an effort to listen to their concerns, empathize with their frustrations, and find creative solutions to their problems. If you're a teacher, you may not have control over the curriculum, but you can take ownership of how you teach the material. You can find innovative ways to engage your students, create fun activities that reinforce the concepts, and give personalized feedback that helps each student improve. And if you work in a factory or on an assembly line, you may not have control over the production goals, but you can take ownership over how you contribute to the process. You can find ways to streamline your tasks, identify potential quality issues before they become problems, and offer suggestions for process improvements. There's an extraordinary power to be gained by doing it your way, even in the most disempowering circumstances.
And finally, we come to experiment number six, own your mindset. The final way to build our sense of intrinsic motivation is one that I developed while working as a junior doctor. I first encountered it towards the end of a long shift in the obstetrics and gynecology ward. Just as I was preparing to leave, one of the nurses stopped me and asked, Dr. Ali, please can you put this intravenous IV line into the lady in bed four? My heart sank. I knew the patient's veins would be tough to find, and trying to put this line in her was going to delay my leaving the hospital for at least another half hour. As I gathered the equipment, I felt an undercurrent of resentment. If I'd just left a few minutes earlier, it would have been the night doctor's job to put the line in. I could have been driving home, picking up a McDonald's on the way, listening to an audiobook. Now I had to stay behind and sort this annoying task out. But then I overheard a patient in another bay talking to her husband. She was gushing about how wonderful her experience of hospital had been and how grateful she was for the doctors and nurses looking after her. It made me pause. I was about to use my medical training and practical skills to put in an IV line so that we could give a young lady 12 weeks pregnant with her first child fluids overnight to help with her nausea. It was going to make her feel much better and it was going to help the baby growing inside her as well. How could I possibly be grumbling about this? This was the job I'd chosen. I'd been through eight years of medical training to get to the point where I could be helpful to a patient suffering in front of me. And now that I was finally given the chance to really make a difference, I was complaining about an extra few minutes of work. I couldn't choose whether or not to put in the IV drip, I realized, but I could change my mindset. I recalled an idea I'd first encountered in an interview with the writer Seth Godin. Wandering around with a frown and thinking, why do I have to do this, was a decision. And I could decide to think about it another way. I choose to do this, I could tell myself. I get to do this. Or even, I'm blessed to do this. With this mindset shift, from have to to choose to, I walked into the patient's bay with a spring in my step and a smile on my face, ready to help insert the line. I'm not the first person to have drawn upon this method. In 2021, a group of academics crafted an ingenious set of studies designed to test whether the mere idea of owning one's actions could affect their perceptions and behaviors. Half the participants were randomly assigned to a group where they were asked to write about three choices they'd made the previous day. For example, I chose to wake up early yesterday. I chose to eat instant noodles for lunch. I chose to wake up on my second alarm and move on with my day. The other half of the participants were instead asked to just write about three things they did the previous day. I ate breakfast. I went shopping. I went to the gym. Once both groups had done the writing task, they were asked to reflect on their lives more broadly. In one part of the study, the participants were asked to rate themselves in terms of physical strength, answering questions like, how muscular are you? How physically strong are you? And how well built are you on a five-point scale? The ones who remembered their choices subsequently rated themselves as significantly more muscular, strong, and well-built compared to the control group. As the authors put it, increasing the salience of choice led to a sense of self-inflation, a sense of being positively different, bigger and stronger than others. Simply switching their mindset from have to to choose to, they boosted their sense of control, power, and in turn, what they were capable of. You can do the same. Have to is coercive language that makes you feel powerless. Choose to is autonomy-affirming language that makes you feel powerful. Whenever you feel you must do something, think again. How did your choices lead you to this moment? And is there a way to turn this have to into a choose to? And if you're doing something you really didn't choose, what choices can you make around your approach? Viktor Frankl, the Austrian psychiatrist and survivor of the Auschwitz concentration camp during World War II, put it beautifully. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, 
to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. I hope you enjoyed that little snippet of my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity. I had so much fun recording the audiobook in a studio in London. It was a lot of hard work, but quite a lot of fun. And so if you fancy listening to the entire book, it is available to purchase wherever audiobooks are sold. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode of Deep Dive.